Welcome to the 3B3 Podcast, a weekly look at the world of hockey with your hosts, Cassie, Pat, and Patrick. Mr. Clark, how was the game? From uh, It was uh, quite enjoyable. Um, a 12.30 start, which was quite random. Uh, I think that's the only oddball home game of the season. Uh, pretty good crowd, pretty good energy. We saw nine goals scored. Mm. Um, the results weren't really, uh, in question. It was a six, three Carolina final over the Nashville predators. Uh, just an entertaining time. Nice to see the building near capacity, uh, as it tends to do after the first of the year. Uh, mm -hmm. so Canadian media can't make their attendance jokes as often. <laughs> uh, I know that pain. <laughs> yeah. You think that's really going to stop them? No, but does. they'll they, well they'll find something else to uh, laugh about, critique. Um, the post game celebration was a maybe a B plus or B minus uh, compared to some of the other ones, uh, and that's about it. Uh, my boys saw their first hat trick live. Uh, one, my youngest was very confused why I tried to throw a hat from the three hundred level of the building. <laughs> And my oldest was questioning, why did you even try? You're not going to get it down there. But what he didn't pay attention to was it my hat landed in the 200s. So this, uh, this little girl with her family, she proceeded to chuck it down into the 100s. And it mm -hmm. finally made its way onto the ice one person later. So it got to the right destination. That's how that's see hockey family. We get it. Yeah. If, if you get wanged in the back of the head with a hat at a game. You know it came from the 300. You pick it up, you chuck it on the ice. You don't get mad. Heck yeah. That's exactly what yeah, you do. Yeah, this girl, I, I was watching just to, to, to follow the trail of the hat, and this girl, she looked at, her parents were looking at her. It's like, what are you doing? Where did that come from? She's like, I don't know, but I'm going to throw it. And I was, I was kind of giving her a clap, not that she would notice, because um, she knew exactly what to do. Her instincts, her instincts were spot on in the moment. That is a well-raised child, a very yeah, well-raised child. I applaud. I applaud her parents. Yes, that is as it should be. So, Cassie, you just moved out to Massachusetts recently, Boston area. Yes. Yes, yes um, I did. Are you close enough that you're going to go to any bees games? Um. Yeah, actually, I'm only about a forty-minute, forty-five-minute drive away, and I ninety. And uh, um, so my plan is I'm probably going to, it's my car, having bought it in California, doesn't really like starting very, very nicely when it gets under 20 degrees. So uh, I was actually going to go to the uh, Boston Pride game on um, last night, which I probably should have, but I didn't. I ended up watching um, Colorado and Montreal. But uh, so I didn't know if they had like covered parking or anything because parking garages are a little bit warmer than like a surface parking lot. Anyway, so I'm um, taking that into consideration and considering I work at a utility. So if there's a snowstorm, I may not be able to make it in anyway. I think I'm going to go watch Colorado play uh, Boston next month. Um, Colorado's the team I, I've decided to follow <laughs> for the time being. <laughs> So um, the, uh, 
I, I had toyed with the idea of possibly going down to the island. Um, they actually play back-to-back on the weekend. They have an afternoon game, I think it's the 8th of February, um, at Barclays. And then they have a afternoon game in Boston the next day on the Sunday the 9th. So I think I might do that. I, I don't tend to go to a lot of games in person. Um, I usually end up going to, like, anywhere from three to five a season. I mean, I when I lived in San Jose, like, you know, three months ago, um, <laughs> I uh, I literally lived two miles from the arena, from um, SAP Center, and I still didn't go to a lot of games. I mean, the Sharks tickets are a little pricey, too. I went to a couple of Barracuda games once, once they moved as well, so – which is ironic because they moved from Worcester, which is where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about I mean, I knew they were in Worcester, but I, I forgot that's where you ended up moving to. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go to, I'll, I'll at least go to like one uh, Boston Bruins game um, this year. But what's hilarious is that I don't use Facebook much, but I did mention that I was moving to Worcester um, after, on Facebook and I had a number of people get back to me. It's like, are you going to become a Bruins fan now with horror? <laughs> I was just like, uh, do I have to? I mean, I lived in Virginia for like five years. I wasn't a Caps fan. <laughs> So. It's, uh, welcome, welcome to the city or welcome to the state. Here's your driver's license and here's your required rooting card. Yeah. Wait, those exist? I, I apparently so. That's wow. what people think. Yeah, it's like as soon as you move somewhere, you have to be a fan of that that place. And I'm like, who made up this rule? I, I believe the lawmakers in North Carolina have, have used all their gerrymandering powers to make sure that doesn't happen at PNC Arena for games. Yeah. Um, oh my God, have have they gerrymandered the Wolf Pack and and Duke? I mean, have they really you know set the boundaries kind of like the Mighty Ducks? Where District Five, you know, crosses the border. Now you, now you have to be a Duke fan or an NC State fan. No, that really doesn't exist. Surprisingly, but what happens is there are certain suburbs where um, the closest suburb uh, to the arena is a, a small town called Cary, and is the de facto Pittsburgh Penguins uh, retirement community. Um, so whenever the Pens fans or whenever the Pens play in town, you know that. I, I live in between the arena uh, or Carrie sits in between the arena and my house. So I always know my commute's going to take an extra 30 to 45 minutes each game. Cause everyone from the town flocks the arena uh, Friday night, they played the Buffalo Sabres. So that section of North Raleigh decided to descend upon the arena with all their jerseys. So there is no changing of the guard. Once you move here, you just kind of stick with what you have. See, and that's how it was in Tampa. Tampa Tampa's a weird place for hockey because um, – so I was there before Iserman was hired and the horror of um, Coolis and Barry, who were the owners at the time. Mm-hmm. The, the Melrose experiment. Oh, my God. That was so awful. They almost – I mean, they, they ran the t- – in two years, they ran the team almost into the ground to the point where they were talking about relocating. Mm-hmm. It was just, I mean, now you're looking at Tampa going, how could they even think that? But um, anyway, the, the, the city, they only market to the city. 
markets themselves to the city, which I think is incredibly short-sighted because they can mm -hmm. take in ter territory from all of Central Florida all the way up to the border of South, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, and uh, and they don't. They don't bother. They don't bother trying to market in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. They don't bother with any of that. And I, I just think it's ridiculous. But then I grew up in the Northwest where all of the major sports teams market to Alaska and Montana. So I have a different perspective. So um, anyway, whenever one of the Canadian teams would come down, you would get this huge and I, I know it happens in Carolina too I've actually seen games in Carolina but, but you have this huge influx of people thinking that would be a great time to go vacation in Florida and so and it's similar to what happens with uh with Vancouver you go to Canucks Montreal game and have the arenas Montreal fans or Toronto fans um but this it's instead of it being people who live in the town who are like, oh, I can finally root for my team. It's literally an influx of people flying down from Canada who are like, it's February and Toronto's playing in Tampa. I think I need a vacation right about now. Yeah, it's February. It's minus 15 in Montreal and they're they're playing the Panthers and the Lightning on this yeah. road trip. Guess where I'm going? Right. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. a, it's the same effect with the the Coyotes to a certain degree. You know, yeah. every every time Boston or or Buffalo's in town, you see an influx of Boston and Buffalo people on Twitter saying, you know, those of us who are in town meet up at this section. Well, and that's that's Vegas now too. Yeah. Although Vegas gets a lot colder than what people expect, but, but yeah, people, yeah. Yeah, people don't understand that deserts get really freaking cold at night. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> hey, you're talking to a geographer. I have a degree in geography. I know. <laughs> it's it really cold at night. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. To, I mean, to your to your point about the whole marketing, it's funny because um, I'm close with a bunch of people that are part of the San Jose broadcast, and it's amazing the lack of advertising outside of San Jose that's done for that team. Like mm -hmm. they don't do anything north of the city effectively. Mm -hmm. You don't you will not see any sharks advertising in the San Francisco area, for instance. Oh Nothing. I I worked in the heart of Silicon Valley or in the city next to the heart of Silicon Valley, which is Palo Alto. I actually worked in Mountain View for the last five years. Okay. And mm. and uh there was nothing. It's like you you actually had to drive into downtown. You might see something in Santa Clara, which is right next door to San Jose, and that's actually where Levi Stadium is. But outside of that, no. I mean, I'd go to Sacramento, nothing. You know, <laughs> there'd be nothing. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I've got family in Sacramento. Yeah, I know. I never saw anything about it up there. But then it's also, I mean, it, it's not just U.S. cities that do it. I mean. Patrick knows Vancouver. Vancouver, their their marketing ends at the border. Oh, Seattle, gotcha. Seattle has two junior teams. Portland has a junior team. Um, I mean, you know, there's five major junior teams in Washington State. Vancouver doesn't market themselves in any of those cities. Well, hell, they they hardly market the junior teams around here right. to begin with. 
much less does any of the any of the Canucks marketing make it down here. You know, it's I think the last time there was anything really of interest was their cup run. Um, the two cup 94? runs, 94 and 2011, were the yeah. only two times I saw any sort of or heard anything actively about the Canucks down here on Which local media. The craziest thing, because again, how many how many Seahawks and Mariners fans live in in Vancouver? Uh, zero Mariner fans live in Vancouver. Uh, well, no, there are vocal. actually. They just they just like to pretend that they're they're uh, Blue Jays, Blue Jays fans. fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The 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 only guaranteed sell or the only guaranteed close to capacity the Mariners get every season is when they play the Blue Jays. Right. Which is just yeah, a riot. I know a number of I know a number of uh, people from BC who are Mariners fans, but they only but usually they only make the trip down when the Blue Jays are in town, and that's yeah. it. Sometimes they'll do it otherwise, but but mostly but now they're mostly actually they like to pretend that they're Blue Jays fans. But so Vancouver, the funny thing about about Vancouver is that they have more in common with Seattle and Portland than they do with the rest of Canada. <laughs> that's so, so true. Oh, that's so. So, true. so Vancouver people in Vancouver tend to, you know, gravitate towards Seattle and Portland as like, you know, that that's really the people that they belong with. But they'll and they'll actually say it. So I went to college at Western Washington University, which is half an hour from the Canadian border, and uh, I went. I worked at a. Uh, um, semi-private resort golf course in college for part of college up in Blaine, which is literally at the border. And so you get Canadians coming down all the time who would, you know, be going golfing. And um, (laughs) they constantly were like, why do we even have a border crossing? I mean, we're like the same place. (laughs) It's so true, though. Well, yeah. Anyway, it's so true. Oh, my God. So, yeah. I mean, and and so there's, they like, like I said, they like to pretend they're they're Raptors fans and Blue Jays fans, but they're really not. (laughs) Just in the years they're relevant, right? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Now, Pat, I want to, so on this, on this topic. How much have you seen change as far as marketing of the team since Dundon took over? Because I was always curious about that. So it's actually been interesting. Yesterday was actually the one-year anniversary that he closed on the sale. Yep. And I think as an from an outsider's perspective, like whenever we talk about hockey and hockey marketing, I definitely think it's like a speakeasy where you need a special code to get in the door. And once you get in the door, you see everything. Um, if I'm being honest, I haven't seen too much of a change in in marketing outside of or into different avenues, mainly different areas within our two, and I do mean two metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. Our airport is called Raleigh-Durham Airport because it's two metropolitan areas. It's not a city, um, which everyone in, in the locale will uh, fight you about when you call it Raleigh-Durham. <laughs> Um, but the Ralder, Ralder, yeah. Um, but they are quick to put it on a T-shirt or a bumper sticker. Of course, of course. So, um, but the manner in which they are marketing to people um, has changed. Usually, it was a billboard, a single billboard um, about mm, 
a mile and a half away from the arena. And, oh, I would say some banners and some signage uh, near the uh, hotel where most visiting teams stay. Uh, it's just if you've ever been to uh, Atlanta, it's kind of like the equivalent of Buckhead area. Um, it's North Hills. Um, it's kind of off our little um, uh, inside the Beltline loop, or just outside, I should say. Um, so it's a well-trafficked area um, where a lot of money and investment has gone, but it's the only area where you visibly see anything. Um, downtown uh, Raleigh, which is, you know, a five to 10 minute drive from the arena, uh, still has banners up from, you know, the 2006 cup run. You know, they haven't really refreshed anything. What they have done is kind of changed the way they're approaching their existing uh, ticket holders and trying to go after people that have, uh, you know, made single game purchases. So, we're seeing different TV ads during games. Uh, we're actually seeing more TV ads during other sporting events on channels that aren't just, you know, the local affiliate that carries the, the Canes games. So that's kind of where they've shifted their focus. They're not kind of narrowcasted and doing the same things that they've done traditionally year over year. Um, I think their biggest uh, emphasis has been on retention and just trying to get a few more dollars out of who they have. And I think what we've seen is, you know, one or two people are kind of coming along for the ride. So I've gotten extra vouchers as part of my season ticket package. Um, so I've given them away to people who, you know, may be only able to go to one or two games a year. Maybe that translates into something else. So not a ton has changed, but they're actually kind of putting some money and muscle behind what they're doing. Um, I don't know how many new eyes are seeing things, but it looks like and it feels like more people are coming into the building earlier in the year. So here's here's my thing. So I was down. I was in. I was there for the 2011 All Star Game. Um, and as a member of the media, which was quite an experience. Since I was probably one of they, they credentialed 400 people worldwide. I was mm -hmm. one of those, and I maybe saw three other four other women. Oh, um, but even besides, I didn't have any problems with that or with people generally speaking. But it was still one of those. Mm -hmm. This is overwhelmingly male. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but. Um, but the marketing wasn't really there either for that. And I mean, that was, that was a the major event, the premier event of, of the NHL outside of playoffs. And mm -hmm. uh, Raleigh didn't really, really run out the red carpet for that either, except right around the arena, but then um, right around where the players were staying, like you said. Yeah. So, it, it so the, if, the thing, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say it was if, uh, so I'm sure you were privy to where the fan fest was, which was in an area of downtown Raleigh, which is, right. you know, not next to or convenient to the arena. So mm -hmm. it was only if you knew what was there, you saw the flock of people going, you didn't know what they were doing. They could have been going for a daytime concert or a show at one of the, you know, public art spaces instead of, you know, a bunch of hockey fans going into a convention center. But once you got in there, it, 
you know, everything seemed to be well attended and, you know, well stocked with, you know, vendors and press. So people turned out, but to the outside, no one knew what was going on. Well, and here's here's my thing. I, I mean, having lived in Tampa, um, I, you know, and you know, I've been around. I, I used to go, actually, when I lived in Tallahassee, I used to go up and watch uh, the occasional Atlantis game, which... Uh, <laughs> which was interesting. Um, they weren't as they weren't well attended, but then that's hardly surprising because the ownership at the time was running the team into the ground. But um, what I have found watching hockey in quote unquote non traditional hockey areas um, or quote unquote sunbelt um, areas is that what happens is that you have teams that are run by Canadians that mm-hmm. don't understand that in the United States, every sports team does marketing, including the Patriots, including the Cowboys, including any other, the Yankees, any major sports team in the United States, they do marketing. In Canada, when they have a hockey game, because I've watched a number of games in Canada as well, they just throw a game and people show up. <laughs> they go, people will know, they'll just show up. It's hockey. Um, it's I Canada. Mean, yeah, and so um, you'll find, and so I think that there's that disconnect. And I've been preaching this for years, decades. Um, and you'll you'll find that there's that disconnect, and that's part of the issue with places like Phoenix, and um, places like Florida, and and that sort of thing is that you have Canadians who are running the team who have the say in, in, or the final say in, in marketing or, you know, however they decide to like manage things. And those teams suffer because the people making those decisions or signing off on those decisions don't understand the cultural gap between marketing in Canada, which is non-existent and marketing in the U S which is expected and required. So, mm-hmm. you know, you'll see like Vegas, Vegas got it. That's why the that's why they like not just putting together the team, but marketing the hell out of that team. They got it. They were like busing people up to Montana, you know, right. <laughs> to Salt Lake City, to all these places, and like trying to stir up interest. And then you have someone who puts a team in, say, Phoenix, and just expect people to show up. And then the Canadian media are all like. Oh, well, of course it's not going to work in Phoenix because it's a desert and hockey doesn't belong in the desert. When the reality is, it's like you have some, and I'm not saying that just in a bad way, it's just they're unaware or uninformed or uneducated, however you want to say it, that they don't get what they need to do to promote hockey in the United States. No, I I think your example of Vegas is spot on. What they did is they hired a bunch of people from Vegas that understood the Vegas market to attract people. You know, right. I think that's why, you know, their in-game stuff is so lavish and gear because it's kind of what people expected. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, you know, like you said, when you bring someone from a different organization from the, you know, U.S. North, Northeast or from Canada, the concept of trying to attract a transient population where people just move in mass to an area instead of away, you know, areas like Pittsburgh and Chicago, they saw their attendance drop in the nineties when people were going to places like Carolina and Tampa. Mm-hmm. 
no one figured out how to grab onto those people outside of, oh, they are teams that they like are going to show up two times a year. Well, we'll, we'll get their money those two games. Um, so kind of back up, because what you just said, Cassie, kind of helps me answer another part of Patrick's question. Um, one thing that since the transition uh, from Tom, D- Tom Dundon owning the Canes is he has brought in a lot of people from the outside on the marketing, specifically dealing with digital media. Um, he hired a person who had worked with the Carolina Panthers, the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, he's hired a couple of people. Um, uh, one new person is starting next week coming from Texas who done some work around the Texas Stars and Texas A&M University and a few other places. But they're just bringing people from different markets to kind of influx different ideas. And they're bringing people in from different sports. And I think that's making a huge impact on the relationship between the existing Canes fans and the team's marketing department, which was pretty stale. Didn't see a lot of turnover for a period of six to eight years. Now that's what I was, that's what I was looking for because I have noticed um, there were some ad postings for some digital content and digital media positions open for the Canes a while ago. And it looked like he was building out to something. And, I, and I'm interested to see where all he's going to take it because I think he's, you know, him sort of being good friends with Cuban and hanging around with a lot of that. He's seeing a lot of what's Cuban's been doing over the years with the Mavericks, but also his other entities, which is taking that sort of online approach to expansion, right? Mm-hmm. And instead of traditional media, you know, OTA, television ads or radio ads, because those are those are dying markets. Let's be honest, you know, the viewership ratings, the ratings books for ad sales on your local television stations aren't nearly as as high per ad rate as they used to be because everyone's cutting cords or they're streaming or they're getting content from elsewhere. So I, I it'll be really interesting to see probably in the next two or three years how if he's if he's really sort of out in front of that wave because i'm i i have a weird suspicion with him weird suspicion with him he's going to turn this uh, that whole marketing campaign into something almost viral mm-hmm. and and the whole storm surge aspect of it i think he's just sitting back and loving cuz that is that is free advertising oh yeah so that's the best free advertising so he Tom Dundon had his introductory press conference and he he did the he did the rounds he did the car wash of you know hockey media if you will um where he's doing every podcast every every major outlet he's either on a radio or, or TV interviews for a period of 3 to 6 months into the summer when there was no hockey news and one of the hires that the organization did make, they, they put out a posting for someone to kind of head their uh, their social media department. And I know um, it's a little bit of inside information, but I know that it was kind of a, it, it was like a mid-level position. They had budgeted for mid-level person because that's kind of what went out the door and moved on to a different organization. The person they ended up hiring was kind of more of a senior level. 
this person reached out to the organization because he knew people through different, you know, uh, sports marketing conventions or, or trade shows or what have you. And somehow they ended up working it out. They found the money to, you know, pay a person what he was worth and they brought it in. And you can see just from Twitter content alone that it's a completely different experience and it's something that the fans have latched on to greatly. So when he was first hired, you heard a lot of things. Yes, we'll spend money on the right people. Well, here's one case in point where he has done that. So I think you're right. I think he does have a strategy in mind. And then when he sees an opportunity like the storm surge, he pounces on it. Yeah. Um, so he is willing to shift attention or money or whatever he needs to in the moment if it's the right decision so i think that's a huge change of pace for yeah you've been stuck with that carmanos regime for so long and he's you know old school marketing old school marketing marketing? exactly well that's what i'm saying is that that mentality of i don't need to market people just show up you know i've got a barn and a hockey team um this is great i'm gonna i'm gonna interject something here i my little rant this afternoon about the storm surge and people getting upset about it. Um, Greg Wyshynski retweeted it. And so I just looked at my notifications on Twitter and, and about curled up into a corner and died because <laughs> it's just, it's just blown up a million. But um, one of the, one of the section three twenty eight crew Meg retweeted it. And this person had an absolutely fantastic response and Cassie it ties in exactly to what you were saying a lot of the complainers never had to work to grow hockey in a non-traditional market there's a difference between ready-made audience that grew up with the game and is prepared to be a fan base from birth versus one that doesn't have the experience of of being a hockey fan right and and that ties into a subject that Cass and I will probably go around and around on (laughs) Seattle you know, so, that's... yeah, the thing with Seattle, though, is and this is the thing that I've noticed has not been mentioned very often, um, if at all. Actually, I haven't seen it mentioned in a long time now. There's a lot of military in Seattle <laughs> or around Seattle, not in Seattle. There's a lot of military there. There's a lot of people who have come from other towns who are there who are going to also be part of that, that ready-made fan base. Um, and it's funny because everybody's so concerned about like, oh, how are they going to get people to go to these games? And, and what does that mean for the Thunderbirds and and the Silvertips and, you know, junior hockey in general and blah, 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 blah. But I'm going to raise my hand. I'm one of those people. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is here's, here's my other uh, my other rant, <laughs> well, one of my rants, um, is that you have people who are hockey fans, and then you have people who are fans of the league that they watch on a regular basis, and then you have people who are fans of the team that they watch. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people don't overlap. So, they're, sure, you know, the, the junior teams are going to lose some fans it's probably not that's going to be as significant as people are going to be afraid of um simply because junior hockey is an acquired taste (laughs) and the people who watch it and are fanatical about it are not going to stop watching it and not stop going simply because there's an nhl team there um 
So the general hockey fan, of which I am one, is the person who will go watch hockey no matter what level or who's playing. You put a bunch of nine-year-olds in front of me, I'm happy. <laughs> you know, you put any chillers in front of me, I'm happy. Anywhere in between, I'm happy. I don't care if it's hockey. If I hear that, like, if I hear a hockey skate blade slashing through ice and puck bouncing off the board, then I'm just like, this is home. <laughs> um, if your toes, matter. And, yeah, if your huh? toes and your nose are cold, then you're in the right place. <laughs> yeah, and so it doesn't matter to me who's playing as long as someone's playing. I don't care. Um, and then you get the people who are who are the NHL fans, for example. They will not watch anything but NHL hockey, no matter what. It's all crap. They don't care. And we all know these people. We all have encountered these people. And you just end up rolling your eyes. It's like, yeah, but... And they're like, no, I don't care. <laughs> um, and then you have the people who are fans of specifically the team that they watch, that they either grew up with or they fell in love with hockey. My best friend, she's actually from the Syracuse area. Um, so it's funny that Pat, you should have said that. And she fell in love with hockey with the Syracuse Crunch AHL team. Mm -hmm. She couldn't care less about any other team in any other league or anything else. That's it. It's her team or nothing. She doesn't care, really care about the AHL. She'll like give it lip service, but she doesn't really care about it. She just cares about her team and that's it. So, so I don't think that the, the loss or I don't think bringing in an NHL team is going to impact the junior teams as much as people think because of that. It might, one team may not be able to survive, I suspect, simply because of people being what they are. But um, in Seattle, I think that, that at least for a goodly while, they'll be able to keep both teams and they'll be fine. It'd be very interesting to see because the other thing I was, the other thing I think we're gonna have is we're we're region locked up here for traffic, Pat. It is mm -hmm. god awful. Um, and then you know what I tell people? So you know how traffic maps you have red, yellow, and green, right? Yeah. yeah Seattle yeah, has black. Black. Yeah. Black we, for parking lot. You are not moving. Break out a book. See if there's a taco truck nearby. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. You're you're <laughs> you're hung out to dry, and that's. And that's the problem is, well, not the problem. I think that's going to be part of a saving grace is because um, the Everett Silvertips Arena, it, it doesn't sound like much being only 20, 25 miles north of downtown Seattle, but that's a 45-minute drive without traffic. Without traffic, which mm -hmm. never happens anymore. Right. You know, you're looking at an hour and a half in a lot of cases. And, on the weekend. Know, oh, God, yeah, <laughs> even on weekends. And mm -hmm. the the um, Thunderbirds Arena is now down in Kenton, as I like to call it, South King County area, which is, again, it's about 20, 25 miles south of Seattle. And that's at least an hour drive because the highways down there are non-existent. So, and, and the problem with the traffic is that there's a lot of water and not enough land. And so there aren't any alternate routes. Yeah. You need to go over mm -hmm. a bridge. You have to go over that bridge or else you're screwed. Yeah. And, and of course, the infrastructure of those bridges is, was built in the late 50s, early 60s when, oh, two lanes going each direction is fine. It's you fine. Know. Yeah, it'll be just fine with two lanes going each direction. So the expansion of the area has really just suffocated a lot of the traffic. And because no one's invested in mass transit around here, we're stuck. Well, right? and here's, here's my perspective. I grew up, I grew up out 
Bremerton. I grew up 20 miles away from Bremerton. And so I always took the ferry in. And um, Seattle, Pat, is very up and down. <laughs> there are a lot of hills, and some places they're so steep that they probably shouldn't have roads on them. Um, God, yes. To the, to the <laughs> point where, where if you're at a if you're at an intersection and down by Pioneer Square on the south side where the stadiums are, I can't remember the name of the street. If you're at an intersection and you're going up the hill, the hill is so steep that you have to lean over your steering wheel to see if there's oncoming traffic. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there yeah. are some, there are some, there are definitely some 34, 35, 36, 37 degree inclines around here. Yes. And so, so coming even from the ferry, you, I mean, I, my sister and I would have to walk up from the Seattle waterfront from the ferry terminal up the big old hill in Seattle, downtown Seattle up to Westlake. We usually did the uh, um, Pike Place Market Hill Climb, which is a bunch of stairs until yeah. you get to the elevator. <laughs> and, and then once you get the elevator, then you're fine. And then take the, and then from Westlake, take the monorail into the Seattle Center. And when the um, Thunderbirds were still playing at um, Key Arena, which, thank God, that's going away. pissed me off so much. Um, and so <laughs> that building just made me so angry. Um, and so, so coming from the West, you're dependent on the ferry unless you want to slog through Tacoma and, like, all the traffic between. Um, but even still, you're dependent upon, that's really the only true mass, mass transit in the area. It was for many, many years. Um, and you're dependent upon the ferry schedule. So if the game is going into overtime, if it's a playoff game and they're going into multiple overtimes, then you have to check the ferry schedule to make sure you're on the last ferry back across. <laughs> which, is, which is what I was going to bring up because it's the running joke, you know, with the Capitals games. You know when they when the playoffs start going oh, into yeah, those yeah, multiple overtimes, oh, yeah, because yeah. the metro will shut down. Oh yeah, well, they'll, yeah. yeah, they'll make so. they'll make exceptions on the metro. I know they've done it before, but so Pat, I've mm -hmm. I've never been out there. Um, there are people I've heard over time complain about fourteen hundred Edwards Mill Road being sort of out in the middle or too far away, almost almost comparing it to like. The, the Canadian Tire Center in Canada versus Ottawa. And yeah. that the reason for the state fair trip was, you know, the, the surface streets and infrastructure out there was so bad that they didn't want to risk, you know, pissing people off by having a two-hour commute to get to the arena or something. Um, do you see... Uh, question for me, because I'm curious on this one. Have you ever seen that be a real issue? I don't think it really is. Um other than it's outside the norm of what you would do in any other metropolitan city. Um, I'm going to say just Raleigh in itself is kind of a different animal from what I've seen from other professional sports markets. Um, one, for whatever reason, the business dollars, the corporate spending isn't there. So being downtown next to a building that houses, you know, 400 to 1,000 employees isn't much of an incentive to put an arena there. Um, using kind of the Ottawa comparison, you know, Kanata is, what, 30 miles 
away from downtown uh, Ottawa proper, whereas our arena is, you know, four miles. Where it is is in a junction of all our interstates. So, so oh. <laughs> which actually works in its advantage. So our region is called the Triangle because it's made up of three major universities, three different rural or urban uh, living areas, Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. And because it's kind of at a center for all the uh, interstates, it's actually easy from all three locations to reach the arena. I live in Durham, North Carolina, so I'm about a 12-mile drive, and on average, takes me 22 minutes to get to the arena. Not a problem. On a Friday night, dealing with Friday traffic, it might take me 45 minutes. Not a big deal. The problem is there's nothing to do immediately after the game. There is a reason why we built a tailgating culture. It's because the arena was built on state-owned land in connection with the state and North Carolina State University. And it's literally across from, uh, you know, college football stadium mm -hmm. and across the street from the state fairgrounds. So literally the parking lots that they use during the two-week North Carolina State Fair is the exact same parking areas that are used during Hurricanes games, during NC State athletic events. Oh. So that's why there's the whole hullabaloo about the State Fair trip in October. Okay. Okay. And this year they had actually attempted on the last Saturday of the fair to play a home game. Yeah. And it was pretty poorly attended. Yeah, um, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, it was a one o'clock start, mid of the afternoon. So you figure, okay, you're going to get your influx of state fair people. Then people show up to the arena. And so there's kind of, uh, you know, you've diluted heavy traffic at times. Um, I think just most people stayed away because it's just not what they do. I'm a partial season plan holder. So I go to 22 of their 41 home games. That just wasn't the game I ended up picking for various reasons. Um, and I think that's just kind of smart man. <laughs> eh, you'd be one of the few people to, uh, to say that and uh, find any agreement. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. There is going to be a push uh, for, you know, eventually a new downtown arena. I'm not in favor of it, but it could work out gangbusters for the team. Uh, I don't think it's an absolute need. I don't think having amenities, like if you look at Columbus, I haven't been there yet. It, it, it's one of my next stops, but having an arena built in a district specifically planned and developed around, you know, sporting and concerts just makes too much sense until you can get something like that instead of plopping a building in the middle of a already busy, you know, infrastructure, it's just never going to work. So I think where they are is fine. They just need to pump money into the building. Uh, unlike what Ottawa has to deal with, which is another government operated town. Um, you know, their attendance issues, I think, yes, they're out in the, in the boonies, but it's, I think they're also limited by what happens with the Canadian government. Here, we're getting more and more influx of people. Population growth is, is starting to stagger off, but more and more people are coming to the area. Events outside of, uh, you know, Canes hockey still doing great at the arena. 
not many issues. Um, buildings booked probably at least 300 days a year. I don't think arena location is, you know, the the problem that most people see it is. They just see here are these video clips of downtown and then here's this big parking lot around the sports arena. So, you know, okay, so so as a as a geographer, um I look at these things and I think well, two things. Historically, public buildings such as arenas, which are often built with government money, are typically built in places where the land is cheap. And so a lot of the arenas that were built in downtown, they were often built in, what, like the 90s or something? Well, in the 90s, there was a lot of people moving out to the suburbs. So the downtown core was dying off, and that's where the land was cheap. And so... Now that the downtown core of, of most major cities is starting to be reinvigorated, people are suddenly seeing that, are saying that, oh, these are the best places for the arenas, when in fact that wasn't the case at all when they initially built them. Oh, it's, so, it's, uh, sorry, it's it's funny because specifically here in Seattle, it's it's been hysterical to me because the cost of living in Seattle was so bad that people moved out to the suburbs. And because yep. so many people moved out to the suburbs, the cost of living and the traffic got so bad coming into the city that more people are moving back into the city because the commutes are too long and it's mm -hmm. too expensive to live in the suburbs. So you know, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy to a certain degree. It's, yeah, but... it's a cycle. People mm -hmm. people like do that cyclical thing um, over time. It changes. So it's usually like a 20-year cycle. I, I mean, most people don't really think about it, but... If you think if you think about you move out to the suburbs, you move into a house, the suburb is up and coming, you're thinking this is a great neighborhood. By the time that you're you know, your kids are graduating high school, it's kind of run down and people aren't really wanting to live there anymore. I mean, you know, some neighborhoods are better maintained than others, so that, that shifts a little longer and some of them shift a little shorter, gentrification and all that. But um, typically on average, twenty, twenty five years is how these things shift back. It's like a bell, it goes, or like a, um, not a bell, but a uh, um, pendulum goes back and forth. It changes all the time. So for people to sit there and say, oh, you know, we have to have a, an arena in downtown or else it's going to not work. Well, in 20 years, you want to know something? People aren't going to want to go downtown. They're going to want to go back out to the suburbs. <laughs> so, 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 what you know. Yeah, so what you're saying, Cassie, is the Coyotes are 20 years ahead of the game on this. Oh, maybe. They right? For sure. Right. right. So Glendale, in 20 the years, yeah. it's going to be epic. But, it's going to um, be booming. So, the, so actually what I really would like to do, and but I want to get paid for it, which is why I haven't done it, um, is I would like to do a geographic case study on you know profiling all of the major cities and their arenas what they have what the city you know the demographics of the city the neighborhoods the um you know what what who's where their ticket base is coming from how that measures with others you know do the whole like nine yards feasibility study for at least the nhl if not like everybody that would be awesome but Again, I'm not gonna like do that for free. <laughs> that's that's a job in and of itself. But Lame. I've always wanted. I know, right? Um, but I've always wanted to do it because you could. It would. I mean, you could like get a lot of insight as 
to what makes a team's fan base successful or what, you know, I mean, but that's just one of my little, like, well, you know, if the NHL pays me, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get Gary on the phone. We'll get you hooked up. All right. Awesome. Thanks. (laughs) Um, Now, the other thing, Pat, is my biggest concern or one of my other big concerns about the whole Seattle influx is there's not how do I put this now? I'm going to piss off a lot of people that, that run into the, um, um, the NHL, NHL, the Seattle account um, in that I disagree with them greatly. This has not been a ground up push, a grassroots push for an NHL team. This has been a top down push. Mm-hmm. This is the NHL wants a team in this market. Not that there has been a massive demand for a team in this market. Right. I've been, I've I lived here almost, yeah, I've lived here almost all my life um, outside of a few years of living in Maryland when I went to college. I have never seen a groundswell demand for an NHL team. Yeah. No, the I'm, NHL, uh, just interrupt for two seconds. The NHL has wanted to put a team there since the 70s. Yeah. And they've been dying for years for a new arena so they could do it. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's perfect. My concern is, is, the growth of the game. Big topic with me is the growth of the game. Mm-hmm. And the growth of the game starts with the kids. Um, and I don't see a lot of, of concrete plans with the Seattle ownership group about how they plan on, you know, are they going to invest in adding some more sheets around here in some youth programs? And now, for my money, the best team, the, the team that's done that the best over time has been San Jose. San Jose under George Gunn, the original owner, hit the ground running with youth programs. And you're starting to see more and more players get churned out of those youth programs. You know, we're 25 years in, you lop off the first five or six, you know, as they build up the programs and you start developing um, higher quality players and more attracting higher quality um, talent, so to speak. Um, I don't. I'm. I'm a little bit concerned about Seattle doing that, and I've also been curious about how. Do you see anything from Dundon, or have they made any mention about growth like that under him? So it kind of takes things back a few steps. The team has been here 21 years. I have lived in the area. Let's see, about 19 of those 21 years. So I moved. Uh, in early 2002, just after the uh, O2 Cup run. In that time, the area has only gained two sheets of ice. Most of that came after the 2006 run. Uh, something was, pl- or excuse me, 2004 is when it officially opened, but it really gained uh, business after the 2006 Cup run. Um, in that time, no new sheets have been added. North Carolina's uh, growth numbers, according to USA Hockey, have kind of been up and down as the Hurricanes have performed. Um, I think they've uh, they finally kind of leveled off the decline, and they're keeping kids in the program. But unless new ranks are planned to be built, it's going to hurt any new market. Thankfully, since Dundon was uh, – come on board there's been plans for about four years for a basically a a, an entire athletics facility or an athletics campus uh 
about uh, four miles from the arena to be built. It's already under construction, but the ice facility hasn't broken ground yet. The land has been graded, but they haven't started on the structure. The team has signed a contract on a new twin sheet facility. So the area is actually going to gain at least one sheet of ice. There's, there's talk of the existing builder of this new, it's called Weight Competition Center. You can Google it. You're not going to find much information, but you'll see some renderings. Um, he currently owns the, the Canes existing, uh, practice facility, um, that is, oh, junior B franchises have better practice facilities than an NA, this NHL team. It's, Ouch. it's pretty bad. You know, when I see pictures of warrior ice center where the, you know, the Bruins practice or, or the new digs up in Minnesota, I just cringe because I know this this area could use something. So two sheets, it, it's it's a start, but nothing was built after Carmanos moved the franchise from Hartford here. Everything was privatized. So, you know, that's one thing I think Pat and I, Patrick and I, we kind of talked, you know, through DMs is, What's going to happen with, you know, a new practice facility? What happens after that point? Um, you said San Jose has done a good job of that. I think St. Louis did an excellent job in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that's why you see that up influx of NHL drafted prospects from the St. Louis area over the last five years. I think Nashville is going through that now. They have a new facility opening up somewhere in the suburbs. I'll have to ask good friend Justin Bradford where exactly that's going to be. But they are building more and more ranks as, you know, their building is at capacity. It only makes sense because you're you're building spots for future ticket holders to get in love with the game. Mm -hmm. One Because once you're in, you're kind of in. Oh, yeah. yeah so I have one question not to be discussed right now, but possibly discussed at a later date. Why are teams on the hook for having to build shoot device? Follow us on Twitter at 3v3podcast. This has been the 3v3podcast, sponsored by Nobody.